Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Systems and Cybernetics. I'm your host, Tom Schult from the University of British Columbia. And today I'll be talking to John Mingers about his excellent book, Systems Thinking, Critical Realism and Philosophy, A Confluence of Ideas, out from Rutledge in 2014. Now, of course, that makes it not quite as new a book as many of the new books we uh, talk about on this network. But as we are a brand new channel on this network, and this is only our second episode, and I believe this is one of the most important and insightful books in the field in the last few years, I thought it was important to bring it to the attention of our listeners. So that's what we'll be doing today. In the fields of systems and cybernetics, such movements as soft systems methodology and second order cybernetics have undermined the objective realist view from nowhere at the core of scientific practice. Instead, they foreground a constructivist view of knowledge, insisting that human consciousness has no direct access to any possible external reality, and thus, when considering social systems, ontological questions need to be put aside in favor of strictly epistemological ones. In the view of John Mingers, this epistemological turn has done much good through its pluralistic approach to truth claims, but has to some degree overcorrected in its rejection of naive realism and left the rationalization of particular interventions into social systems in a state of unproductive paralysis. In his book, Systems Thinking, Critical Realism, and Philosophy, Mingers offers an integration of the work of critical realist philosopher Roy Baskar as a corrective to this state of affairs. Minger's thoroughly detailed and rigorously argued book offers systems thinkers and cyberneticians a potential way out of an epistemological cul-de-sac, a way which is surprisingly compatible with such canonical thinkers in the field as Peter Checkland and Humberto Maturana, and one that opens the door to new kinds of differential ontology and methodological pluralism that could help move these fields forwards in significantly productive ways. Just a few words about our guest. Uh, John Mingers is a professor of operational research and systems at uh, the University of Kent in their business school. He is a former chair of the UK System Society and a member of the Committee of Professors of Operational Research. Since 2004, he's been a member of the editorial board of MIS Quarterly. He's been senior editor of the International Journal of Information Technology and the Systems Approach since 2006, member of the editorial board of European Journal of Information Systems, Systems Research in the Behavioral Sciences, Journal of Mixed Methods Research, and uh, he has a prodigious body of uh, publications that you can find in various journals and uh, other books that he's written. Uh, one note, there is some uh, popping, um, intermittent popping on uh, Dr. Minger's um, side of the interview. I apologize for this. Uh, I don't think it's enough that it will uh, take away from your enjoyment of the interview, but uh, and it does clear up significantly towards uh, the end of the interview. We, we tried to find a way to clear that up, but it couldn't quite uh, entirely go away. But um, I trust that you will get as much out of this conversation with uh, Dr. Mingers as I did. Thanks very much for listening. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Professor John Mingers. Welcome to New Books in Systems and Cybernetics. 
Hi, hello there, Tom. Good to have you with us. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. I'm, uh, I absolutely love your book. I think it's an incredibly uh, rich and detailed uh, piece of scholarship that addresses some, uh, some ongoing epistemological questions in the world of systems and cybernetics that I wrestle with and that uh, I've been in, involved in some lively conversations at various conferences about these and uh, not uncontroversial. So uh, I'm really looking forward to our, our conversation. Um, our traditional first question on this channel is with all the channels on the New Books Network is just if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself, your academic background, your trajectory. And I know you, before you joined academia, you were a systems practitioner of a kind, and I know continued to practice as well as being an academic, uh, but your, your trajectory and, and how you came to an engagement uh, with systems um, over the course of your career. Yeah, well, um, I started my life, I suppose, uh kind of high school, doing a lot of physics and maths. And my first degree then was in uh, what was called management science, which was about managing things, but it was from a very scientific point of view. It was about building mathematical models and simulations and such like to try and help organizations work better. And uh, when I finished my degree, I then went and worked in various companies doing that. Um, but, but that was a big learning experience for me because I, I discovered, as, as other people did as well, that when you come to the world of human beings with all their peculiarities, their psychology, their sociology, their culture, their politics, uh, a lot of that can't be fitted into mathematical models. And so a lot of the projects that I worked on, um, I could see that what I was trying to achieve was uh, constantly being circumvented in one way or another uh, with the realities of human beings. Um, and at the same time, I used to do a lot of reading. I was always a very uh, voracious reader. And I just by chance, came across some of the early systems books, particularly uh, one book by Gregory Bateson called Steps to an Ecology of Mind, um, which is, I think, a foundational book for systems thinking, applying cybernetic ideas to psychology and anthropology, and various other books as well. And uh, I decided I wanted to go back to university to try and pursue this, because it seemed to me that this idea of holism, of trying to take a more uh, rounded approach uh, to human beings offered a way forward uh, beyond just the mathematical modelling. Uh, and I looked around for some systems courses, and there weren't many, but by luck, the one I found was at Lancaster University. This was in the end of the 70s, and it was just at the time at which Peter Checkland was developing soft systems methodology, which was a whole new approach to systems thinking, moving it from the hard, positivistic kind of systems engineering to try to actually take into account uh, the kind of reality and irrationality of human beings. So it was a major time uh, for that to be just occurring. And uh, I got very interested in it, stayed on and, and started a PhD. And uh, I sort of switched then from the kind of mathematical scientific end of the spectrum right the way across to the other end of the spectrum, uh, becoming a sort of interpretivist, constructivist, um, in which you know the real world kind of disappeared in favour of everything being people's constructions, people's beliefs, people's thoughts, but uh, no real world there. Um, and I was I did my PhD and then I became a lecturer. But after a while, when you're in that position, you realise that actually that's the problem because you can't actually do anything if if there is no real world that you can uh, actually. Uh, influence and, and there's no real problems because everything's just somebody else's construction. There's uh, not really very far you can go with that. 
Um, so I then had to move back from that kind of extreme uh, constructivism towards somewhere more in the middle. And, and the uh, philosophy that I had come across during my PhD that I used to do that was Habermas, Jürgen Habermas, who's a German sociologist. Um, and for quite a long time, and, and still to some extent, um, I used that as the way of overcoming these this sort of uh, chasm between positivism and interpretivism. Um, I had actually, while I was at Lancaster, come across critical realism slightly. Uh, and there were a lot of interesting people at Lancaster at the time, and two of them, um, one was a sociologist called uh, John Arry, and the other was a philosopher called Russell Keat. And they wrote a book called A Realist Theory of Science. And even at that time, um, already realism was was seen as a very negative thing, that everything was interpretivism. Every time you talked about the real world, you had to put scare, scare quotes around it. Uh, and they wrote this book called A Realist Theory of Science, which was trying to bring back realism into social science. Uh, and I'd come across Bascar's work. It was just beginning at the time, but I didn't really do very much with it. Um, going further, leaping further onwards, I, I pursued my academic career, uh, and I was very interested in the idea of methodology, of how we can um, use methods that are not purely quantitative methods to try to help organisations work better. That was really essentially what it was about. There were so many problems and so many difficulties. Um, but what I felt you needed was uh, methods that would take into account both the hard quantitative aspects of the world, but also the soft qualitative human aspects of the world. Um, one of the uh, things that I brought up uh, in the early 90s was what I called multi-methodology, which was the idea of combining together quantitative and qualitative methodologies. And at that time, that was uh, a bit of a no-no because we were in the world in which uh, there were different paradigms, the positivist paradigm, the interpretivist paradigm, the critical paradigm, and they were supposedly incommensurable. You had to be within one paradigm or another. You couldn't go across them. That was a definite contradictory thing to do. So trying to argue that actually you should do that was, was seen as quite um, difficult at the time. I think things have changed now and it's much more seen as, as a much more normal thing to do. Um, so I had methodology. I had the systems thinking that I spent a lot of time reading about and looking at. And it was around that time, sort of early 2000s, that I started uh, coming across papers that were talking about critical realism. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. I've known about that for a long time and I've occasionally mentioned it, but I haven't never really done very much with it. Uh, and I sort of discovered there were lots of other people like me in various realms of social science who were also struggling with this dichotomy between positivism and interpretivism. And also at that time, there was stuff about uh, postmodernism and poststructuralism, which kind of led you up, as far as I was concerned, a complete uh, blind alley. Um, and critical realism offered a way out of all of those things. It seemed to offer a way of uh, accepting something of positivism, accepting something of interpretivism, but at the same time critiquing both of them and coming up with its own uh, strongly realist view, reinserting re the idea of realism into things. Uh, and so I think during that period, um, lots of people in lots of different social sciences all began to see the potential for critical realism to get us out of the rather nasty impasse that we've been in. Um, so 
I started working on critical realism and, and arguing for it in the various disciplines that I worked in. Uh, terrific. You, you've already, in, in answering that first question, opened up a lot of the terrain that, that the book covers so well and that we'll, we'll talk about and touch on um, in this interview. Um, and certainly that, uh, that impasse between um, hard, hard versions of constructivism and uh, maybe perhaps more naive interpretations of realism uh, is definitely uh, at the core of, of systems and cybernetics as, as I've encountered it over the last few years. So um, the book is incredibly, as I say, incredibly rich and, and full of lots of detail. And I thought maybe the simplest way to sort of outline it for, for listeners who are ho- hopefully will go on to become uh, readers will be to... Um, just look at the terms in the title. Uh, often words seem obvious to us, but it's good to sort of explore them a little to see um, specifically how authors are using them. So you've already told us a little bit about systems thinking. Uh, can you tell us a little more ab- about systems thinking as you've experienced it um, and what uh, elements of it that you wanted to engage with in this book? I know you've talked a lot about all that already in your first uh, in your response to the first question, but if there's anything else you'd like to add in that in that zone. As I say, I came across systems thinking, particularly uh, in the 60s and 70s. And what seemed to me of importance was the central ideas of things like um, feedback, things like uh, information uh, and boundaries and components, and above all, the fact that it was about the relations between things. Um, Probably the key idea to me, anyway, of systems thinking is that it stops you looking at particular components or particular elements of things in isolation. But what it forces you to do is to say, how does A relate to B? And how does B then relate to C? And then maybe how does C relate back to A or or to something else? Uh, And the idea of seeing systems within a context, within an environment, and the way in which a system might behave one way in one context and a different way in another. All of those were the ideas that seemed to me of very great importance from the system, first sort of systems thinking that I was looking at. Um, Then we got this real kind of uh, break brought about partly by Checkland and soft systems, where he was saying very strongly, actually, what's important with human systems is that human beings interpret the world in their own particular ways. They perceive and they conceptualize things as a particular type of system or another type of system and we're not really in a position to be able to say definitively that it is one or another we have to respect and recognize the fact that human beings have their own purposes they have their own ways of viewing the world they have their own experiences and they may well conceptualize and experience the world and view the world as different sorts of systems Uh, and so this is the kind of phenomenological interpretive revolution that went on in other domains of uh, social science. Um, But it really brings about a very fundamental shift, uh, a shift away from, and this is what Chetland himself said, a shift away from ontology, away from talking about things as they actually are in the world, towards epistemology, that is talking about how we perceive things, how we see things, how we understand things. And Chetland himself said we can no longer see the world as composed of systems. All we can do is to say we use systems ideas in helping us to explain how the world works, but we can't objectively or ontologically say systems exist in the world. Um, Now that 
that was also the same break that was made within cybernetics with the work of Maturana and Varela on autopoiesis, uh, which led to second order cybernetics and what they talk about the cybernetics of cybernetics, you know, the observing of observation. Uh, again, a move away from cybernetic systems in the world to the process of observation, the process of modeling those cybernetic systems. Um, and that seemed to me very important. And as I said, at one time, I made that move completely myself. But I think that if you take that too far, then you lose something. What you lose is the very idea that systemicity, that it is the systemic nature of things in the world that actually uh, leads it to be the way that it is and to behave in the ways that it does. Um, so that's really where critical realism comes in because it helps you to uh, recognize the limitations of our observing or the necessity of recognizing the fact that we are observers, but it nevertheless um, reinstates the idea of, it, cause it tends to call it mechanisms, but I would call it systems, um, in the real world. And the way that it does that is because it has a criterion for the existence of something in terms of causality. If we can say that we've observed, some, we've experienced some things, how do we explain those things? Well, if this were the case, if it were the case that systems existed and acted in these ways, then what we had observed and experienced would have happened. That gives us grounds for therefore arguing that such systems might or must exist. Um, so I didn't really want to go the whole way into, or I wanted to come back from the edge of soft systems and phenomenological systems to reinstating the idea that systems actually do exist, even though it's difficult for us to have a clear uh, and objective perception of them, um, and that they bring about behaviour in the world because of their systemic nature. So uh, what were some of the um, ramifications for this, uh, the soft approach, or the more epistemological approach? Were you finding that it was literally making it difficult for um, practitioners to make the kinds of interventions that would be most useful, that there were really, really uh, important um, blocks that were coming up for practice from this more sort of um, epistemological turn in systems and cybernetics? Yeah, I think so. Because, I mean, you know, first of all, it was a good step forward because it recognized that in complex problematic situations in organizations, say, one couldn't just make the sort of assumptions that traditional operational research had made. One couldn't just assume that everybody was going around you know, maximizing profits or minimizing costs and that the only things that were important were what you could quantify and what you could put in your model. So it was very important in taking us out of that way of looking at things and into a way of looking at things which recognized um, that people behaved in ways which would not be rational according to normal economic versions of rationality, that different people may genuinely hold different views and understandings about the nature of a situation and that often the problem was as much to do with reconciling or trying to reconcile those different views of a problem as it was some particular actual feature of the problem. So I'm not going against soft systems totally at all. I think it was a huge leap forward uh, and enabled us to move towards dealing much better with a whole sets of more complex human-oriented problems. But at the same time, it did have its limitations in the sense that if you take the view, which... Checkland tended to espouse that all of these different viewpoints were equally valid and that there was no 
um, position from which one could say, well, your viewpoint is better than mine, or the real world is like this because the real world has essentially disappeared in favour of people's views of the real world. Um, that did cause a problem because you could spend a long time arguing endlessly about, uh, you know, different people's different perspectives, but you weren't able to say you're wrong. Your view of the world is wrong because there wasn't a world against which you could compare such things. So I think it was a move forward, but it brought with it its own um, limitations and problems. Right. So in a sense, this intervention of critical realism that, that you've been proposing for a while now throughout your work is a kind of corrective to is a, to an overcorrection coming from the, the soft systems uh, slash second order cybernetics approach. Yeah. Kind of a course yeah. correction in that sense. Yeah. Because at the end, I, I mean, you mentioned this in your book that when we're sitting around a table trying to come up with a course of action, uh, have we th- completely thrown out any yardstick through which we can say, well, we've got three options on the table. Um, I think I came across another presentation of yours online where you were looking at uh, the the example from Malcolm Gladwell's tipping point uh, of, uh, you know, so we got three different explanations on the table, three different mechanisms or systems on the table. Uh, but if we're going to actually take some kind of action, we, we there needs to be some yardstick uh, against which we measure these interpretations. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. We need to go beyond merely saying these are three different people's views about what might be happening to actually try to investigate and discover in a kind of research sense um, what the evidence for the different things might be and uh, and try to, and it may be that all of them are working in that tipping point example. Um, it could have been that more, you know, more than one of them is all in play at the same time. Um, but within SSM, at least, I think in practice people didn't hold this so strongly, but within the sort of pure theoretical view of SSM, uh, then you couldn't really go beyond the individual people's beliefs to try and actually discover in some more formal and more clear-cut way that certain things were indeed happening and other things were indeed not happening. A couple of things that I wanted to follow up on in terms of systems thinking, but this may take us, and we already have gone into the the, the intervention that critical realism is, is making in your work, but I wanted to follow up on, you mentioned the notion of autopoiesis, and uh, you also mentioned, um, or we talked a little bit, I think you mentioned boundaries in passing, but I'm interested in um, autopoiesis and boundaries and, and um, w- w- how you see them working in the systems thinking as you, as you found it before you introduced critical realism. And then maybe that will segue us into uh, the, the sort of uh, commitments of critical realism and how they address um, things, how they help us see autopoiesis and boundaries in a different way, particularly that vexed question uh, our social systems autopoietic, and maybe for viewers we could just give a, a thumbnail. Uh, sorry, viewers, listeners, uh, uh, a thumbnail of of what autopoiesis essentially is saying. Yeah, well, I mean, I came across autopoiesis also whilst I was at Lancaster, and it's in fact, um, it's been a question that's pursuing me almost throughout my life. My PhD started off with the question of are social systems autopoietic? Um, autopoiesis, I think, uh, again, it's a bit like soft systems. It produced quite a revolution in, in the way of thinking, and much of that was really good. But to me, it seemed to go too far in a particular direction. So to put it simply, um, autopoiesis means self-producing or self-generating or self-constructing. And Maturana, of Rale Maturana particularly, was a biologist, and he was very interested in um, living systems and basically asked the question, if we see some complex dynamic thing wandering around, how do we know whether it's a living system or how do we know whether it's a machine, a non-living system? 
In other words, what is the pure primary characteristic that makes living systems, living beings, living? And prior to Maturana, there were various sort of ideas. One was the old idea of vitalism, which was just meant they had some living thing in them, but nobody really knew what it was. Um, then there was a sort of James Miller's uh, biology, which had big, long lists of different characteristics that living things ought to have. Um, but for any list, then always something didn't fit. Have you got all the characteristics? Uh, certain things have some of them, but they don't have all of them. So how does that work? Um, so there was never a really clear-cut, pure definition of what made a living system living. And Maturana came up with this view that if you look at a a um, archetypal living system, like a single cell, like amoeba, what does it do? Well, what it actually does, if you look into the chemistry of it, is that it produces parts of itself. Um, we're not talking about reproducing another amoeba. We are talking about, on an ongoing basis, it is continually producing the components that it needs for itself to be itself. So it is a self-circular process of production. The things that it produces are the things that it needs to actually make it itself. And once you've got that self-circularity, that self-production, then all sorts of very interesting things follow on from that. There's all sorts of consequences that follow on. Um, not least that the thing has a degree of autonomy. Um, it can exist within its environment in a much um, more viable way than something which depends on all sorts of other things to keep it going. Um, so the pure idea of autopoiesis is a system that produces itself. And he argued that once such a system comes about, that is then a living system. He was obviously interested in systems that were composed of molecules and chemicals, uh, and which therefore generated biological living systems. But fairly soon after he'd had his idea, other people started suggesting that there might be other forms of self-producing systems. And one of the obvious ones to go for was um, society or the social world. Could we say that a society in some way was a self-producing system? Um, and that was where the debate happened. As I say, I, I started with that question and didn't really resolve it in my PhD. I'd actually moved, I actually moved away from it and moved on to some other things. But um, I've written quite a few papers at various times where I've really tried to look into this very hard because some people just fairly naively think, oh, yes, social systems, autopoetic, no problem. But when you actually look at it in terms of the real definition of autopoiesis, not only must it be producing some element, but it must also be a bounded entity. Because if you haven't got a bounded entity that has a boundary around it, then how do you know what it is that is self-producing? Um, and this is the problem of social systems, really. Right. And of course, Nicholas Luhmann uh, says that, that that element that's produced is communication. And that, that, and that, but it still leaves us the question of, of boundary. And for him, it's this sort of pulsating boundary that sort of is appearing while we're communicating. And it's, it's, it's definitely a, a complex and fascinating theory. But um, so, so that takes us naturally towards boundaries. So maybe you could continue talking a little bit about social systems um, and their quasi-autopoiesis and the notion of boundary and, and how that's important. Yeah. I mean, I think it is. I, I looked in various papers, both at Lumen's work, as to whether that could be said to show that systems are autopoetic. And as you say, there, there is there's a number of things that I find problematic about Lumen, not least that in his view of society, it actually doesn't have people in it. 
Um, for Lumen, his system consists only of communications. People um, are and, people are essentially the environment for that system. Yeah. Yeah, which seems a very under any circumstances seems a very strange thing to do. And uh, how can one possibly imagine communications without people producing the communications? Um, uh, and as you say, there's no boundary, and so I'm not very really very clear about that. But um, I also looked at the work of Giddens, Anthony Giddens, his British sociologist, and also Bhaskar himself has his own social theory within critical realism. Uh, and they too have both uh, hinted at the idea that they might see social systems as autopoetic. Certainly they use the terms autopoiesis in the various places in their work. Um, but for me, it ultimately comes back to these two questions. What is it that is being produced? And to what extent can we specify a boundary within which that production takes place. And in the social world, it's not really very clear. It's certainly not physical people that could be said to be produced within a social system because physical people are, are a biological uh, process. Uh, it could be um, practices, social practices. It could be rules. It could be positions, social positions. There's various sort of contenders for what it may be that is being produced. Um, but then you get on to the idea of how you can bound a social system, and that becomes very difficult to actually uh, specify. There's certainly no components of a boundary, and it's even hard to limit um, in some more abstract way uh, the limit of a social system. And yet it's still quite a tempting thing to do because you can see institutions that have lasted for uh, hundreds and hundreds of years. I mean, if you take something like a church, the Roman Catholic Church, that's been around for 2,000 years and is continually um, maintaining itself with new members, with slightly new practices, such like. Uh, and it's quite tempting to see that as a system which is in, in some way producing itself. And that could be said to have a sort of boundary in the sense that uh, a membership boundary, not a physical boundary, but a boundary between those who are members and those who are not members or something like that. Um, so that's the kind of tempting idea as to why one might want to see social systems as autopoetic. Yeah, particularly this idea of communication that the church is the example, the Catholic church, there would be certain uh, communications that are um, um, appropriate to those systems and keep them going. So, uh, you know, the, 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 the rituals of the mass and etc. cetera. Um, but yeah, where it, the, the degree of boundaries and uh, what kind of boundaries can be said to exist or not, which takes us back right back to ontologies, which is where you're, you're steering us. So I think it's a good point to jump now right into uh, the sort of major commitments of critical realism and maybe how you saw them as a, as a tool to help us grapple with, uh, with some of these things. Yeah. So um, critical realism began with the early books. I mean, Critical Realism, the person who produced it, Roy Bhaskar, um, is a rather iconoclastic figure. He's never been a sort of formal philosopher. He's never been part of a philosophy department. In many ways, he's on the margins of philosophy. And, and interestingly and unfortunately, his work has never really been integrated into philosophy. It's always been seen much more uh, by non-philosophers as relevant. But um, essentially, he started off by... Uh, trying to or aiming to reinstate the idea of realism, the idea of a that there is indeed a real external causally efficacious world, whilst at the same time recognising 
for that, the problems of our having uh, access to that world, the fact that we can't just observe it unproblematically. And this was the problem with positivism, traditional positivism, especially logical positivism, that it all had to be based upon uh, observation statements, which were pure observations of the way that reality quotes was. Uh, and the observer, the scientist, had to be scrupulously kept out of the picture. Um, and that ended up, uh, in many ways, uh, with a very impoverished view of reality and a very impoverished view of causation as well. Um, everything was merely sets of empirical data that could be um, mathematically modelled in some way or another um, without, enable, or without going underneath the surface of the empirical observations to try to actually... So what he wanted to do was to um, reinstate this idea of a real world whilst recognising, nevertheless, that the points that interpretivists made about uh, the fact that perception can never be pure, that we don't have access directly to reality, we're always having to interpret it, it's always um, culturally and historically conditioned in some way. Um, so that's where the two words come from in a sense, the realism and the critical that we're being realists, but we're recognising that we don't have pure, unmediated access to that real world. Um, and I think one of the central distinctions that critical realism makes, which is a very important one, um, is between what he calls the transitive and the intransitive domains of science. So Pascal looks at science and he says, uh, on the one hand, along with the interpretives, along with the sociology of scientist people, I accept that much of what goes on in science is human construction. We make observations, we write papers, we come up with theories, uh, we apply for grants, all of these things. This is all what he called the transitive side of science, in which we are trying to generate ideas about what is going on. But against that, there have to be the objects of knowledge, the things that we're trying to gain knowledge of, which must be separate from and independent of our gaining knowledge of them. And that's what he called the intransitive domain of science. Uh, and ultimately, if there are no objects of knowledge, then we are not really doing anything in science. We, are, we don't have anything uh, to put our knowledge against or to have knowledge of. Knowledge must be knowledge of something. So he draws that first distinction between the transitive and the intransitive domains. Uh, and then the second big distinction that he makes is um, that he says, if we look at the world as a whole, which he calls the real, um, then we need to make a split there between the actual events that go on from day to day, from minute to minute, from hour to hour, things are happening, events are happening. But those events are not happening randomly. Those events are generated by um, what I might call systems, what he called mechanisms, uh, that are relatively enduring, that last for a while. They may be physical things, uh, they may be social things, they may be cognitive things. Um, so what we've got here is, on the one hand, some relatively enduring entities of various different types that are interacting with each other. And through their interactions, they are producing these events, the actual things that happen in the world. And so there is a distinction between the real and the actual. And then within the actual, within the domain of all the, the events that are actually happening, most of which are never observed by anybody, never seen by anybody. Nevertheless, some are, and, and that's what science is about. It's about recording certain events, and that becomes the domain of the empirical. So we end up with uh, the real, which is the whole thing, uh, but within the real, within the real, I say, not separate to the real, within the real, we have the domain of actual events that occur, 
and do not occur because for Bhaskar, absences are also very important. And then within the domain of the actual, we have the domain of the empirical, the things that we actually observe and try to explain and try to build theories about. Um, so for, for Bhaskar, traditional positivist natural science actually is limited to that domain of the empirical. So it, it occupies a very limited space within the overall world of the real. And so for Bhaskar, what we're trying to do is we are starting off with some events that we've observed and that are in need of explanation. Maybe they're events that don't match to our current theories. Maybe they're just events which are going on. We think, well, that's very puzzling. Why is that happening? But we begin with this situation in which we need to have, or we wish to have some sort of explanation of things. And what we then need to do is to go beneath the surface of those empirical events to try to look for the mechanisms, what he calls the generative mechanisms, what I, as I said, would call systems, that through their properties and through their behaviours and through their interactions are actually generating these events. And um, so his methodology is based upon what he calls retroduction, which is as opposed to induction or deduction, which is the idea that we start off with something we wish to explain and we hypothesise, we come up with an idea, we try to be imaginative. We try to think, what could be the case that if it existed, it would actually explain what's going on? So we try to hypothesise these potential generative mechanisms, which have particular properties, have particular behaviours, and which, if they existed, uh, could actually explain what it is that we're trying to explain. And then the next step is obviously having hypothesised those things. We then go away and try to actually do research to either um, eliminate them if we think that you know, we can or to try to find confirmatory evidence that this may well be actually the case. Right. It's a, it's a remarkable set of moves in a sense uh, if you look at it from within the traditions of of soft systems and, and cybernetics and that it, it, it almost, it seems to me in some ways it takes, it takes the notion of re-entry that uh, exists in cybernetics that the way you describe something then re-enters the thing in a way for all intents and purposes from the observer's way. But in some ways it takes that idea even more seriously in that it really says the, there, these, the re-entry is really efficacious that because there's even the idea that concepts have a kind of ontology, even though they're not observable because they do actually in a, in a feedback loop, the concepts then enable and guide certain actions, which then make the concepts even more efficacious. And, and it's almost as if this, um, this uh, boundary in the, in, the, in the world of, um, of the real, but perhaps not the empirical, gets even more solid in a sense or more thoroughly instantiated through this, this cycle of c- concepts and descriptions guiding action. Is that, am I on the right track? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, certainly concepts uh, can be seen by Bhaskar as being causal. Causal, you know, we have a concept, we have an idea, and on the basis of that concept idea, we then do things, and that actually uh, leads to changes in the world. So, concepts and ideas can be causal, uh, and the social world itself, even though it's unobservable, and, and as he says, social structures and social mechanisms can only be observed when they are actually carried out by people. Um, and so the social world, he recognises that there is a difference between the social and the physical world. The physical world can be touched and can be seen and can be measured and have uh, instruments put on it. The social world is different in that social structures can only ever be 
evidenced or experienced through their inaction in people actually doing things. And I, I find that one of the easiest um, examples to think of the social world is language. Um, if you think about something like English, which we're talking, um, clearly language can only be exhibited when people actually talk it. We can't find it. I can't point to it. It's not on my desk. It's not in a book. Um, language is something which is untouchable. And yet, clearly, if there were not such a thing as language with its structures and its rules, uh, and this weren't encoded in some way or learnt to become encoded in some way in our brains, then we wouldn't be able to have this conversation. So even though we can't touch it or see it or feel it, we can argue that it must exist because of its causal eff efficacy in, in generating the experiences that we actually have, uh, that is, being able to communicate using language. Um, going just something else you're saying, which sort of struck, struck me a little bit. I mean, um, one part of systems thinking, which I think is very interesting in this field as a, as a sort of typifying or exemplifying it, and I talk about it in the book a bit, is um, system dynamics. So system dynamics is a particular approach, one of the many bits of systems thinking, um, which particularly looks for feedback loops. So you, it encourages you to start off with something you want to explain and then look at what things are causing that and what effects it's having and building up pictures of the multiple causal relationships and loops between the various uh, factors that you can come across in order to try and explain the behaviour that you're seeing. Um, and there's a particular uh, book which you might have come across by Peter Senge um, called The Fifth Discipline. Um, and in that, he has this idea of what he calls systems archetypes, which are particular sets of feedback loops which occur in many, many different situations. And once they occur, then they generate a particular type of behaviour. Um, but this can be, in, as I say, all sorts of different uh, actual uh, domains. So uh, just to take a very obvious one um, that you've already mentioned with um, Malcolm Gladwell is the idea of a tipping point. Um, if you look at that in systems dynamics terms, then generally speaking, what you've got is two feedback loops which are working in opposition towards each other. Um, and thereby balancing each other. So in the example in the book about, uh, it was about disease, sexually transmitted disease in Baltimore, um, you had a very steady level of sexual disease for many years. Uh, and there were two basic loops, one of which was the loop which was generating examples of the disease, and the other was the feedback loop of the uh, doctors and medicine which was curing the uh, disease. So, and these two were very much in um in balance with each other. And then something happened, maybe more than one thing, which either um, strengthened the positive feedback generating a disease or it weakened the negative loop controlling it. And the two loops then became out of balance. And very quickly, the positive loop outweighed the negative loop and you got this tipping point. You got this sudden huge increase in the number of diseases in a very short space of time. And so that idea, I think, is a very good way or a very good example of what we can see uh, could be meant by a generative mechanism in Bascard's terms, that we've got two sets of feedback loops which are working in some way in relationship to each other and through their interactions are generating a set of events in the domain of the actual. And then something changes and suddenly the behaviour of the whole thing changes and you get a very different set of pattern of, of events. And so looking at it backwards, we've got this sudden change 
of events or change of behavior, and we now want to try and explain it in some way. Right. And it, it it's um it's also striking me that uh the more sort of conceptual um uh, uh things that can have uh, that level of causal effect uh, saying it in a situation like the one you're describing, people's attitudes towards people carrying certain sexual transmitted diseases um, are going to affect their behavior as well. So some of those ones that are really not in the empirical realm, i.e., you know, these that that are only act, they're only become empirical when someone says something or behaves in a certain way in which those attitudes uh, are enacted in some way. Um, so being able to identify those kinds of feedback loops that are about um, people's opinions and attitudes and and concepts um, become identifiable as well. Yeah, because that's one of the things that um, is in critical realism is the idea that these systems, they have powers, they have properties, but the properties may not be realized all the time. So they may need something to trigger them. So as a human being, we obviously have the capacity to get very cross and angry. But we're not cross and angry most of the time, or most of us aren't, but it needs something to trigger it. That When something triggers it, then suddenly the property or the power is, is manifest. So again, against the sort of positivist idea that it's only things which are observable that, that exist, um, Basque, I would say uh, complex entities have many properties, have many powers that uh, may exist, but don't we don't ever see them because they never get triggered, or we only ever see them if they are triggered. Uh, or even more, they may be actually demonstrating their power, but there may be something else countervening it, something else going against it. So again, we don't actually see a result because the two things are balancing out, just as I said, with the tipping point example. And and uh, the structure, of course, is uh, the latent structure is also, of course, going to um, constrain and and guide in some way the nature of the way that it unfolds. I think of um, Danella Meadows' classic example where she would hold a, a slinky in front of her class and then she'd take her hand away and the slinky would, of course, drop and bounce up and down. And she'd say, well, what caused that to happen? And they'd say, well, because you took your hand away. And she'd say, no, that triggered it. It's the structure of the slinky that makes it bounce up up and down. And so once it's triggered, there's a, there's a structure there that might be, in that case, it's a, a, an actual empirical structure, but these other types of structures that are going to be causally efficacious in the unfolding of the behavior that's after it's triggered. Yeah, that's right. And um, that is one of the main points that Maturana and Varela made in there, uh, because apart from their biological theories, they also had theories of the nervous system and neurophysiology. And one of the big points that they made was that our brains do not um, simply picture reality. They are not driven by the stimulus that they receive. On the contrary, the way they behave depends upon their own structure. Anything coming into them can only at most trigger a particular way of behavior that the brain or the nervous system has already developed. Um, and that's a very important thing, I think, because it it goes against the sort of behaviorist, empiricist view that our brains are simply there reflecting um, the experiences they've had and the reality that sort of, quotes exists outside. Rather, our brains and our nervous systems are structurally determined to behave in certain ways, dependent on their structure at that point in time, uh, but they can be triggered by certain events and certain things that, that occur. And I guess, I mean, first of all, that's, again, one of those areas where you can see that Maturana and Varela's thinking is, is in fact, compatible uh, with critical realism. Um, and also, I, I'm wondering, too, 
it seems like perhaps this gives us even a little more purchase uh, in one way on on Lumen's theory, the idea that it is only when they are enacted that these systems or mechanisms become visible. That may be another way that it may be actually help Lumen's theory out to some degree to talk about, you know, because for him, that sense of communication, right? It's, it's invisible and, and except in those moments of communication, uh, do you think maybe they're not as dissimilar as they might seem this idea of, uh, they're, we only see them when they're enacted, but they are there. Um, possibly I, I found Lumen's work very, um, I read quite a lot of it and I found it very, uh, abstract. I found it uh, quite difficult to relate to my experiences, uh, and I found it quite hard to actually envisage social systems without people in them. Um, and yes, I can see that. I mean, I could see that you could, that in some ways, what he saw was quite nice because you could imagine, and I'm sure people did, um, a sort of network of email messages and the way that they, you know, trigger one email message, triggers another, which triggers another, which triggers another. And you could actually map Lumen's theory quite nicely against something like that, against a set of real communications, like a set of email messages. Um, but it didn't really seem to me beyond that to explain much of the, or, or address much of the reality of, of real people in real human situations because there was no motivation in it. There was no desire. There was no, uh, people wanting to do things there was simply abstract codes abstract messages almost like one was looking at a set of you know it's almost as though one was looking at um, Facebook or something purely in terms of its messages without actually understanding that behind all those messages and pictures and this that and the other was real people trying to do real things and real people with mental models um, so as we move towards our close here, the, the third uh, term in the title of your book, of course, is philosophy. And we've obviously touched on um, a certain amount of that already in talking about epistemology. But you do some fantastically thorough work. And this book is so thorough in all of its uh, areas of investigation that it's, uh, it, like I say, it really is, is remarkable and, and uh, a great um, a benefit to read. Um, Positioning some of this within some other ongoing or long-standing theories of truth or the relative validity of truth claims, you know, um, uh, correspondence models, consensus models, etc. Is there anything you can tell us just about how you see this sitting and, and maybe some of the work that your book can also do, not only um, helping systems uh, thinkers and cyberneticians find ways to uh, grapple with some of the ontoepistemological questions that have been at the core of their work uh, for a long time, but also maybe move Baskar's work um, and make it more visible in the, in the philosophy community. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the three terms, as you said, in the book, systems thinking, critical realism and philosophy, and then there's the sub, title a confluence of ideas so i found myself in this situation which obviously i've been in systems thinking for many many years then i was in the critical realist world and i i found it very frustrating because i could see that almost everything that Bascar writes especially in his latest stuff is kind of pure systems theory and yet he never uses the terms and he never refers to anything about systems theory or any of its literature and yet what he's saying what he's talking about in different words is, is much the same and then um I was more recently when I was at Kent, I'd always been interested in philosophy and I made some contacts in the philosophy department and they had some quite interesting people there who were working on causality and uh, they were doing some reading sessions where we'd read some papers or read some books, have some meetings each week. And it turned out that in philosophy of science, which had for as long as I'd known it been 
very much driven by the kind of um, hypothetical deductive model where, where it's all the whole point of science was to use induction to generate general laws and then from the general laws use deduction to explain particular instances in the sort of popper Hempel tradition, which I'd always found very unrealistic really, but that there was this whole um, new way of looking at causality, which they called the mechanisms view. And it was particularly people in the areas of biology and chemistry and things like that. Um, but they were coming up with this uh, way of explaining what was going on in terms of mechanisms. And that's the term they use, mechanisms that have particular properties and behaved in particular ways. And I thought, hey, bingo, that's mechanisms. That's what Pascal talks about. And that's what systems talks about. And so once again, however, they weren't making any connections to these other domains. They didn't really talk very much about systems thinking and they didn't really talk about Pascal at all. Uh, it was as though they were reinventing the wheel again. And I, so, so I found myself with a foot in three different camps, all of which you seem to be saying the same thing, really, and yet not talking to each other, not even recognising the other's presence. And that was why I came to think of writing the book to begin with, um, as a way of trying to show and demonstrate these commonalities between these different disciplines and hopefully in some way, um, uh, you know, bring them together a bit and, and uh, enable people in the different disciplines to, to draw on the other other particularly on systems theory, I think, um, where a lot of this stuff has been discussed and debated and developed um, for many years. Um, so that's where the philosophy bit came. Um, and I do find it frustrating, really, that, that philosophers, when you talk about them, they've never heard of Bhaskar and they don't really seem to be particularly interested in it, even though it seems to address some really big philosophical issues. Um, and getting to the, the knowledge and truth, um, one of my central themes in my own mind has been the connection between knowledge and action. Um, my PhD was actually called Knowledge and Action, and I've got a previous book which was called Knowledge and Action with a subtitle on it. Um, and it's always seemed to me from when I was very young that a lot of people kind of separate the two and they, they see them almost as opposites. You know, you're either acting or you're thinking about things. Whereas to me, the two seem completely related that any form of action ultimately depended on some form of knowledge. It may not be explicit knowledge, it may be implicit, it may just be what you've been told by people at various times. Um, but nevertheless, action relies on knowledge and knowledge in turn uh, feeds into action. Um, so the two had always seemed to me to be two sides of a coin. Uh, and I'd always be very interested in the relationships between the two. And that for me, generating knowledge, a, an explanation and understanding of how things worked was partly at least, majorly perhaps, to done in order to try and help the way we act in the world. Because coming right back to my beginnings, I was always uh, interested in trying to manage things better and trying to help organisations work better and trying to help people solve problems. Um, and, and if you then ask yourself the question, well, what is knowledge, which you have to, if you're starting to be interested in knowledge, um, you fairly quickly get to the traditional philosophical view of knowledge, which is true justified belief. So for philosophy, knowledge would be something that is a belief that you hold about the world, that you have some justification or reason for holding that. And above all, it is actually true. Well, it would be nice if we could know that. But what do we mean by truth? So that leads to the next question is, well, what do we mean by truth? And what are we actually trying to pursue when we try to get towards truth? And that's been a big problem um, 
going back again to the debates between positivism and interpretivism, because if we don't have access to the real world, if our understanding and, and observation of the real world is always relative to ourselves, then how can we ever um, understand or get a view about whether some propositional theory is actually true or not, because we can't compare it with anything external to ourselves. Uh, and that is obviously the central problem with the main theory of truth, which is the correspondence theory. So the sort of fundamental taken for granted common sense, and indeed not just common sense, but philosophical view of truth is what's called com correspondence theory, which says a proposition is true if what it says corresponds with how the world actually is in some way. But we can see straight away that that's very difficult to do. Uh, if we don't have some sort of pure unmediated access to the external world, how can we ever compare our theories or our propositions uh, to determine whether they're true or not? And so in philosophy, that led to all sorts of alternative theories to correspondence, um, in general, weaker theories that, uh, so for example, coherence theory, which says that uh, we should judge things to be true to the extent that they are coherent with all the other things which we think to be true. Um, this is a sort of view from Quine about our knowledge being a network of beliefs which all fit together some way. And, and the more that we, some new theory fits in well with all the um, thing, other things that we believe, the more true it's likely to be. Um, then there is uh, consensus theory, which says actually what's true is what scientists think is true, that the best we can manage is to have a community of scientists who are the most knowledgeable people that we've got, uh, and they are discussing, debating, experimenting, and whatever they hold to be true at any particular point in time is the best that we can manage as far as truth goes. That was very much Habermas's theory of truth, going back to Habermas that I mentioned earlier. He had a very strong consensual, discursive uh, view of truth. And then there's pragmatic views of truth, which says basically truth is what works. If, if we can solve some problem, if we can uh, answer some question with a theory and it seems to work and it seems to hold up and, and so on, then uh, we should judge that to be true. So is what works is what's true. Um, and uh, where we are at the moment, which I actually didn't put in the book, but um, is a more recent paper that I've written, is that actually in philosophy of science, because of the problems of reconciling all of these different views, uh, they are now actually coming up with a sort of multivalent view of truth uh, and actually say maybe there isn't just one sort of truth, maybe there are different sorts of truths and maybe different sorts of domains have different sorts of truth standards. Um, so the current debate is actually about what they call a pluralist view of truth, um, which is quite interesting. Mm -hmm. I would say that that does surface in the book too, um, because you do talk about um, the different different degree or different types of ontology in terms of those um, social mechanisms versus yeah. So it, it's it, the, the groundwork for that is definitely uh, in the book and and sets it up nicely for where the debate is going now. Thank you. We've taken up an awful lot of your time. You've been very very generous. Um, so we will close with our traditional final question, which is, what are you working on now? Um, what I've been working on recently is really just uh, some more um, developments of various parts of what's been talked about in the book. Um, so 
one thing which I think is very interesting, which I didn't put much of in the book, is what is information? Um, information is a term which is totally ubiquitous at the moment. Everything is information. All of the network, you know, the World Wide Web is information of some sort or another. We have a discipline called information systems. And yet, interestingly, in that discipline of information systems, they do not have an agreed definition of information. It's like chemists not having an agreement about what a chemical is. Uh, it's quite amazing, really. And again, we have very diametrically opposed views. So some people hold a subjective view of information and say that uh, data comes in and information is what a particular individual person might gain from that data, which means that information then becomes purely subjective. Others hold an objective view of information, which says information is external to people and that, that various different messages and signs and signals and such like carry information about the nature of the world. So um, I'm just written a paper recently on uh, the nature of information and um, not surprisingly, perhaps I hold an objectivist view and it's very compatible with critical realism. So information is one thing. Uh, and then causality and validity is another because this really picks up on on the, the truth, the pluralist view of truth, again, in information systems as a discipline, there is a vast range of different methods and approaches from very statistical, very positivistic research at one end through interpretivism and phenomenology and critical theory and all sorts of other um, types of research approach at the other end. And um, one of the things what I tried to do in this paper was show how if one took a pluralist view of truth and one also related that to a slightly wider term, which is correctness, truth is one thing, and it's very difficult in some circumstances to see that truth would necessarily be appropriate. For example, if you take a computer system and you say, does it work? Um, it doesn't seem appropriate to say, is this computer system true or not? Um, but uh, you could say, is it correct or not? Is it working correctly or not? So a wider term than truth is correctness. Uh, uh, and um, from that, I was I tried to develop a framework of correct of asking what what in all of these different ways of doing research, what might be seen as correct and what might be seen as valid. So that rather than seeing all of the different uh, research approaches as being antithetical to each other and all in their own little paradigm and not talking to each other, actually, we can see that underlying them, there are a set of very general criteria like correctness and like validity, which research can aim for, uh, although in each field in its own different way. Well, uh, in the spirit of a true systems thinker and cybernetician, you are, uh, and as you have with this book, trying to get people who you think are actually not as opposed as they think they are and are actually talking about very similar things with different uh, languages, trying to get them to speak to each other, which seems to have been um, the sponsoring mission of cybernetics and systems in many ways uh, from its inception. Uh, and along that with comes the frustration that you've talked about, but yet it, you just keep, you know, as Sisyphus rolling, <laughs> rolling that rock up the hill. <laughs> well, but you've done right, a, yes. Yeah, you've done a magnificent job with it, and I, I certainly hope thank, that thank some much. of these new, yeah, I hope that some of these new uh, investigations will turn into a, a book length uh, uh, publication as well, so that we can have you back on as as soon as possible. Because I've enjoyed our, our conversation very, very much, and I, I'm sure our listeners have too. Yeah, well, thank you very much. So thanks very much.
Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks. Our guest again has been uh, John Mingers. We've been talking about his book, uh, Systems Thinking, Critical Realism and Philosophy, A Confluence of Ideas uh, from Rutledge. Thanks again, John. <laughs>